0: Hey, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl for our mid-July podcast and videocast. I'm here with a very special guest today, talking about an issue that's very much been making the headlines, especially of late, but for a long time has been part of uh, <clears throat> the way in which we've been trying to look at gender, sexuality, what it is to be male, female, all these kinds of things that um, we're going to have this really great conversation about today with Heath Fogg Davis. First of all, a classmate at Harvard. Secondly, yeah. <laughs> that's because that's first in my heart, not first in. <laughs> Not first in his heart, perhaps. Well, maybe. I don't know. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, He is the Director of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Temple. And so this is a new position. I'm thrilled uh, that my friend has this amazing new position. And as a professor of political science, uh, he teaches courses on anti-discrimination law, democratic political theory, and the politics of race, gender, and sexuality. Heat Fog davis welcome to Wise Girl, where we invite one to discover the inner wise girl or wise guy inside. <laughs> welcome, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, talking about these issues.
0: Yeah, well, all of these issues are outlined in your book, which I have just uh, read, which is amazing. You've really put everything together for people beyond trans Does Gender Matter?, and I think that um, you make a very compelling argument as to your position on this issue that we will hear about. You're also the author of The Ethics of Transracial Adoption, and we spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that you write about the things that, in fact, you have experienced, which I love, um, because I think that it's really coming from a place that people can, um, you know, sort of identify with and just relate to. So welcome to Wise Girl, and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right, so let's get started with this, Heath. Um, what prompted you to want to write this book? It was published in 2017, last year. And what was finally sort of the, you know, the, the catalyst that made you say, I got to put this all down on paper and share my thoughts about this to the world?
1: Yeah, I think um, two, two things come to mind. So one was sort of personal events in my own, in my own life um, uh, transitioning uh, to male later in life at 38. Um, and so these issues that I was living uh, through and sort of the bureaucratic administration of what it meant to um, transition on my job and to go through all the administrative uh, hoops about you know, changing gender markers, um, whether it was on a license or a passport um, having a name change, all of these things. So, I was going through all of these things, and we can talk a little bit more um, about that because it's it's a lot, and I think people sometimes outside of the experience may not realize what what it entails, just you know, bureaucratically. Um, and then the other thing that was going on at the same time um, was that there was this case happening in Philadelphia that I talk about in the book, and I start off with that. Um, anecdote about, um, you know, here in Philadelphia, we had a very bizarre policy with our um, public transportation system where uh, if you got a monthly pass, you had to have a gender marker on your bus pass, which is as ridiculous as it sounds as I'm saying it. Um, Nevertheless, this policy um, persisted for decades until um, an African-American transgender woman Uh, named Charlene Arcilla challenged it as a form of gender identity discrimination. So that, you know, I started to think about that particular case. Um, I I knew Charlene and I had worked with her and done a lot of activism within the city. And I felt like if if ultimately the stickers were removed, although that's a whole, whole story leading up to that, but if the, if that strikes us as a bizarre and ridiculous policy that doesn't have any rational justification, like there's nothing um, rational about forcing people to do that. then I started to wonder about like why do we have these gender markers on our driver 's licenses and on our passports and you know why do we segregate public bathrooms according to gender um, and so it just it kind of sparked this sort of you know cascade of questions about you know like just let's question it all you know and in some cases um, as i talk about in the book i think in some cases gender does matter in policy Um, but when that is the case then i think that we have to really explain what we mean and and why so that was kind of like the personal story and then sort of like the activism that was happening simultaneously around this case
0: Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And um, again, you know, your personal experience about this is so meaningful to so many folks who are uh, just really trying to wake up, you know, uh, around these issues, either personally, or socially, or politically, or however way you want to, you know, slice the cake. So first of all, can you describe, can you define, I should say, uh, what transgender means? Can you just, for the person who really kind of is still a little bit confused or maybe doesn't really know, and how that differs from what they might think it is?
1: Mm, this is, I love the question <laughs> because this is really, really important. Um, and I just want to preface uh, by saying that I i assume good intentions around this issue. Um, I really do. I think that, I mean, Bracketing those who are just bigoted and, go, you know, are are, are, are not necessarily going to change their opinions and they have similar opinions about other social identities. I think for the most part, um, most people know that this is an issue that is now in our public sphere. We're talking about it. Trans people have existed forever, of course, and non-binary people, but now we're talking about it. You know, in our, our public sphere. Um, so I assume good intentions. The major hurdle for most people, I think, is that they don't know what this means for their behavior. And, you know, so like, what am I being asked to do, you know, and we don't want to be wrong, you know, so when it comes to transitioning in an employment setting, for example, um, or in a school setting, you um, you know, it's important to set up a structure that
0: minimizes
1: the propensity to make gender identity mistakes, but also is forgiving of those mistakes when they happen and they're inevitable. Um, so, to to get back to your question about definition, um, I want there's two answers. Like the straightforward one, and then, and then the the other answer is that the terminology is always evolving. You know, so. I just gave a talk um, in Vancouver where I was talking to some a group of lawyers, and, I, and they were asking a similar question, and I wanted to caution them uh, not to think that you, we've arrived at the term, you know, and this is going to be the term that will be the right one to use forever because it's going to change. Um, but basically speaking, you know, transgender refers to people who were assigned... One sex at birth, which we all are assigned uh, as sex at birth based on the cursory inspection of our genitalia, you know, whether it's on an ultrasound monitor now, which it typically is, or, you know, in the actual when we're born and we come out into the world. So uh, for trans people um, who who, um, uh, identify differently from that initial sex assignment. Um, And for me, as a kind of a binary trans uh, transgender man, meaning that I identify, I use male pronouns and I identify socially and, and uh, personally as, 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 um, as male, that's not always the case. And so some people find a place of home in between genders or both genders or more fluid. Um, so I use the term trans and gender nonconforming or trans and non-binary to try to be as expansive as possible. Um, because my experience is not the entire experience of the trans community, um, but it is one, yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that because I was doing an interview the other day on um, on, masculinity and the pro-feminist men's movement. Um, and, and he was saying, it's not masculinity, it's masculinities, you know? And so to that degree, you're sort of saying, yeah, well, it's, you know, transsexualities in a way, if you will, right? There's um, a lot of uh, fluidity within, within that in some ways. Um, I loved how you said, uh, when we are born, we are uh, assigned a sex of birth because it invites this othering from the get-go that someone is describing what we are. And the question that you bring up in the book is really, are we asking the question, who are you and not what are you? So I loved how that is one of self emanation and self description as opposed to uh, labeling externally. And the other thing that you just said that I thought was um, really also resonant with me from a mindfulness perspective and some of the Folks who, you know, listen to this, are sort of in that realm, if you will, is that you just mentioned expansiveness, and um, you know, we're always trying to recognize that there is space to hold enough of these different kinds of um, ways of looking at things, and that there is a fluidity, and things are impermanent and ever changing. And so, the fact that this definition is not one that is static is also very reflective of the fact that really. Nothing is really static. My body doesn't look the same as it did 10 or 20 years ago. Forget about yesterday. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs)
1: let's not go there. We're the same age.
0: (laughs) Right, I know. (laughs) Anyway, um, so with that, um, you talk about personal ID documentation. You talk about things like birth certificates and passports and licenses and bus passes. You talk about the public domain and the sphere, bathrooms, colleges and sports. You go through all of this in the book in terms of how uh, you know folks can become more educated about policy that they can implement at these different kind of systemic structures and institutions. What would you like people to know at a basic personal level before we get into the more public and you know broader sphere of systemic ways in which we can integrate and be inclusive?
1: Sure, um, and I, I couldn't agree more with you about the idea of like, this term, you know, expansive. I just um, uh, met with somebody who's doing policy work around trans inclusion in the public school system, um, and uh, they were introducing this term of gender expansive as an, another way um, you know, of, of describing um, this phenomena, which is these phenomena, plural, Like you said, um, so I think on the personal level, the main message of the book and the the thing that, that really, um, comports with my own value system is this idea of, um, gender self definition in the most expansive way possible. So that, um, everybody as an individual is given the permission to own their own identity around gender, whatever that looks like for them. Um, and then comes the secondary part, which is how in, in our society can we set up a structure in our school system, in our employment sector, um, or just various ways that we interact in the public sphere, a structure that is um, that enables that, you know, and gives people the space to do that um, is something that I'm a big believer in. Um, and I think that that's something that can resonate with everybody and so I try in the book I think that these policy changes and that message about self-determination is something that can resonate with everybody and I saw the podcast that you're talking about when you interviewed um, I forget the person's name but he talked about uh, plural masculinities and I love that because in a way it's an extension of the kind of work that I'm trying to do it's not just about talking to trans people I very much want to talk to everybody and to sort of demystify this issue, which is strange and different in some sense, but then when you really start to talk about it, everybody wants that space, you know, to, to define. And, and my hope is that for people who are cisgender and maybe haven't questioned their own gender identities, not, not, not for them to, I don't have any prescriptions for them to ch- make changes, but just to start to be cognizant and Mindful that they are living out a certain kind of gender identity, you know um, It just happens to be supported by the society in a In in a different way.
0: Yeah Yeah, I mean looking at I mean for folks who who don't know you may want to even define cisgender
1: Yeah, so um, that's a term and it's recent as well uh, just for somebody who does not identify as transgender or non-binary, so it would be somebody who um, who self-identifies with the sex that they were assigned at birth and, um, and finds a home there. And, and, I believe, and I truly believe that many people do find a home there, but I also think that we're, all, we're, we're forced in a lot of ways to live there and that we're already seeing in a younger generation evidence that more young people are identifying in gender fluid ways and way, you know. So um, I find that exciting to see what that might.
0: Yeah, I mean, as cisgender is defined by essentially non-trans, right? So, uh, you know, I, at school, when we were back in the day, uh, you know, in Cambridge, I was doing a lot of that work around sort of the spectrum of sexuality. And I was really sort of studying that then. And I don't know what happened. I lost my way, I guess. And I became a a corporate lackey. And then I was a journalist, you know, for, for regular, uh, you know, big, corporations for a while and 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 then I'm coming back to this now and I'm looking at the stuff that I was looking at then many moons ago with fresh eyes saying wow this is so relevant this is so important this is such amazing work so um so this idea of the personal came from really your own experience I mean you lived as a woman like you said for 38 years uh, and you also describe your own personal experiences of not um sort of, or the ways in which people were reacting to you as a woman who had short hair, or let alone as a, you know, biracial, you know, adopted uh, person who had grown up in Canada and now is in the United States and all these other intersections that you also bring to the table, which I think makes your story all that much more compelling. Um, And adding to that, of course, a certain amount of privilege uh, and And that kind of thing, which you are well aware of and want to share, so can you just talk a little bit about that before we broaden it out because I really want to anchor the audience into the fact that this is your story and you're sharing it with the world to try and let other people sort of become more waking about it
1: Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: I think you know that that
1: piece of this of the story um, that you just referenced, uh, and I talk about it in the book because I think it 's really important in many ways in many ways, my life right now um, is so much easier you know socially and public you know uh, gender wise than it was when I was a younger person um, sort of sh- struggling with gender identity uh, issues and whether it was a time in my life that I had very short hair. Um, and was more androgynous in my presentation. You know, trying to access women's bathrooms um, was an absolute nightmare. And so this is an issue, and at the time I was identifying um, as as lesbian, and so um, uh, sexuality is also part of it. So the story of what it means to get hassled in public because of your gender presentation is not limited to trans people, and that's a message that I try to really underscore in the book. And so for uh, masculine appearing women, in particular, um, who don't necessarily identify or they might identify as genderqueer or, but, or maybe not trans, the simple act of trying to use a public restroom that is gendered, um, I was uh, questioned constantly, uh, harassed, yelled at. Um, and this is an experience that if you, you know, that if you talk to um, more masculine presenting women, uh, girls, uh, is a common everyday experience and it's terrible. It really takes a toll on your psyche. So, um, so yeah, I don't know if that kind of gets to your question, but that, I, I wanted to include that in the book because it goes to this issue of privilege also. So, as a, as a binary class privileged trans man who is able to assimilate into um, masculine norms and people, I never get hassled when I use a men's restroom, I'm not noticed. Um, That's a very different experience than the trans person who, for whatever reason, is not able to assimilate appearance-wise, you know, whether it's a trans woman who's trying to access a women's bathroom and is getting hassled and um, the manager called on her and stuff like that, um, that there are these a lot of differences, and then you can see how easily it goes, you know, literally the title of the book, Beyond Trans, and I mean that because these issues transcend that particular label.
0: Right, right, right. Um, yeah, no, thanks for that. I just think it just sets a nice anchor for folks to know, um, to know where you're coming from. So, you talk about um, sex is biological and gender is sort of social, right? That um, we, this goes back to the assignment stuff. Uh, and that how does this play out in the public sphere? You're doing trainings for all kinds of organizations, uh, corporations, and you're trying to let folks know here's what you might want to think about when you're doing your public urban planning, if you're building new buildings and you're installing new bathrooms or if you're retrofitting something or even something like sports teams and you point out some of the issues that you have with the NCAA as well as some of the benefits that they're trying to do. So talk a little bit about how you would like to see things move in any one of those categories or just broadly?
1: Sure. Um, I, I, I learned about this thing called universal design, you know, which is kind of a little bit of a buzzword in our society right now, um, which is sometimes called inclusive design, which I think is an even better term. But the basic, and, and I talk about this in the book, the basic idea with universal or inclusive de- design is that you think, you take into consideration the most vulnerable people. So if you're thinking about, you know, you're building a new office building, um, and you're thinking about the design, the architecture of your restrooms within that structure, um, thinking about who, you know, the the needs of the people who are are made the most vulnerable by gender classifications like that or segregation, and then starting to think about how you can um, create good design for those individuals that also has uh, cascading benefits beyond that, those individuals. So um, there are some architects who are really doing some innovative design stuff around public restrooms to get at this issue. So, you know, and I, and I offer this in the book, so just very quickly, you see this in Philly and also in, in places in New York City, and you might've used one of these like universally designed restrooms. Um, I think there might be one at the MoMA or something like that. There's they're they're popping up. Um where you uh it's not a gender neutral bathroom, I wouldn't say, but it's an all-gender bathroom. You create individual private stalls for people with floor to ceiling partitions. Sometimes this is in sort of like a semicircle. Um and you, what, what you do there is give people what they really want, which is a little bit of privacy. <laughs> you know, we know we can't be completely private using the bathroom in public, but we do expect, and I think it's reasonable to have a little bit. Um, and then uh, just sinks and mirrors in the middle, so, which don't have to be gendered, I don't think. Um, uh, and people don't really even notice that they're in an all gendered bathroom because it's designed so well, to give them what they need and expect. Um, and then the benefits there are not just for the masculine appearing woman or you know girl who I was and had a hard time in those gendered settings, but also um, just for everybody. So you think about like, I'm a parent as well. So, and I have a daughter. So now when I go out to, in the public sphere with her, I have to take her into a men's restroom, which, you know, is, it raises all sorts of issues that the people who are opposed to <laughs> transgender bathrooms you know like, uh, so we can get into the, the, the details there because I think it's important to talk about um, but the benefits are for parents who are in the public sphere with their kids um, my wife was a first grade teacher and on field trips to the zoo and different places she had to figure out how to uh, deal with six-year-olds and the gendered bathroom so you're, or anybody who is elderly and needs assistance or has a disability and has a caretaker. Um, so there's that. And then the final thing is that nobody, even the most sort of privileged, the people who have no problem using a gendered restroom and never think about it, um, that those people are not inconvenienced or made worse off by the design either. In fact, they don't typically notice that it's even happening. So not every situation is like a win-win like that, but I think the public restroom issue really is.
0: Yeah, and I loved what you said is that when you talked to restaurant owners, they were like, well, it made good business sense because it was <laughs> easier to scale and it was better for their square footage. So there are ways in which we can be uh, incorporating, like you say, the win-win, the both and, as we would say in our non-dual understanding and this sort of expansiveness is that we don't have to hold... Uh, extremes necessarily. We can recognize that there's a spectrum uh, between black and white of gray that can be many different shades um, along this gender spectrum. Um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, the idea of schools like Smith and um, the sort of run-ins that they've had with maybe accepting someone or not accepting someone who was not by their definition a woman.
1: Yeah, so I have this
0: women's college, I should mention, for those who don't know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So,
1: um, and this is a chapter um, I wanted to talk about these issues. So there are two, at least two issues that have come up around private women's colleges in the United States. One has been for trans women, young trans women who want to apply for admission to the school, um, and that's one issue and how schools uh, end up defining women um, and whether or not they accept those applications. And then the other issue is for for people who uh, were admitted um, as female identified, but then maybe have transitioned during their time at Mount Holyoke or Barnard or Smith or Mills College, these places, um, whether or not, you know, their self-definition now is at odds with the mission of the school and whether you know to allow them to graduate. Um, most schools have made a decision to, to permit that, but for the, the former scenario, it took a little bit longer. And so there was a case um, at Smith that I talk about with um, an Asian American uh, transgender woman named Calliope Wong who um, uh, sort of Uh, as young people will do, took to the internet with her story and it kind of went viral and got a lot of coverage and ultimately Smith altered its admissions policy. Um, But at the very heart of this issue is the definition of woman, you know, and that's really what these schools, again, trans people have always existed, but they've only been recently had to, been forced to publicly really define and say like, what is a woman for our purposes here, you know, like, how are we defining that? What is our mission? What are we trying to do here? And I am very, very sympathetic, and I love the mission of women's colleges, which is about female empowerment. Uh, We both went to um, a school, an elite school, um, where I'm sure you saw discussion dynamics around gender happening in seminars and in classrooms, and um, and th- these colleges are, are innovating around that and making a real difference. And it's not surprising that a lot of our, you know, female leaders come out of those schools, you know. Um, so they're doing a lot right. I think I want them to maintain their mission, but to then adjust their admissions policies so that they're, um, so that they're being a little bit more clear about the connection between the two.
0: Yeah, and again, it's who is doing the defining, right? And how fluid is that definition? How malleable is it? How rigid is it? you know, because one of the things, again, just bringing this back to the mindfulness angle as I think about this is that, um, you know, rigidity and chaos, those are the two things that you want to sort of not necessarily avoid, but be mindful of when you're dipping into, and you want to stay sort of within this more homeostatic, you know, peaceful state, which isn't to say that there isn't going to be, you know, disruptions of, you know, hyperactivity or, you know, low kinds of um, you know sort of arousal, if you will, and i don 't mean sexual arousal, I just mean you know arousal in 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 the system organically or whatever, mm-hmm. but that that there 's a real way mm-hmm. to kind of um, recognize that that we can kind of bring it into a place where um, there 's more of an ability to ride the waves if you will as they as the seas change, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, you, you also talk a little bit about when you say, what is it to be a woman or, or a man for that matter? Um, you know, Judith Butler, she's someone I also studied back in the day, uh, performing sex, performing gender, we're performing. Talk a little bit about uh, folks who might be, and this is the devil's advocate part, say, well, you're performing your gender now. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that this is an argument that may be out there. Yeah, yeah,
1: I know. And and um, I love Judith Butler's work. It's been so um, uh, revolutionary. I think, you know, um, the academic in me wants to, you know, dig a little bit, you know, because I, um, I think that actually what she's saying, I mean, the term performance kind of connotes this idea of almost sort of inauthenticity, you know, but I think it's, um, Really my interpretation of what Butler is saying is that um, the performance is is everything in a sense you know so it is not this it's kind of what what we are so you know she's kind of questioning this like sex gender binary that I was taught when I took you know women's studies at Harvard and um, a lot of us were you sex is biological gender is social um, and we can change the social, but we can't change the biological, but now we know that we can, and so it complicates things. Um, and I think, um, so I think the benefit of the term perform, you know, gender performativity is that students can start to think about like, okay, what are the choices that I made when I got out of bed this morning? You know, what kind of clothes did I put on? You know, what did I do with my hair? What did, you know, all these things that we take for granted, which have everything to do with with how we do gender you know it's like an active thing it's not a static thing even though you're assigned a gender at birth it takes a lot of work as we know like to like you know I talked to my students who are just you know coming out of high school about peer pressure you know which they can really relate to about their clothing choices and their hairstyles and the music and all these things that have very gendered you know, so like the socialization that we go through around gender is really, really intense. Like, so when we talk about like gender being a social construct, there's um, an, a wrong assumption, I think, that we can easily change it, you know, because these like, they're so, there's so much a part of who we become. Um, I don't think we have to necessarily change. Some of that we should change, but not all of it. It's a becoming mindful of it and, um, yeah. And, and, and thinking about it. Yeah.
0: You know. Well, I think that's the beautiful part is because mm-hmm. I mean, coming, you know, for example, I'm just using myself. And as an example, I was born into a biologically uh, female body. I have identified as a heterosexual cisgendered woman, um, you know, and yet at the same time, that is what has been given to me. It has also been what I have, uh, Felt at home in, or or chosen at a certain level. Um, on the other hand, not to say that it's you know been you know smooth sailing uh, in terms of of all of that, but it's certainly been where I felt most at home. On the other hand, I think what you're really speaking to is how aware are you of that, yeah. and do you know that there are other choices on the table that may or may not be more readily available to you given your environment, right? right depending on how you're being raised, whether or not actually saying these certain things or wanting to express yourself in your own authenticity is welcome with your caregivers and your parents or your town or city that you live in and that kind of thing, and whether or not you essentially feel like it's safe to do so, but that in this broader context of the world that we are shifting into, or expanding into, to use our previous language, uh, that that is what's on the table, that there are those choices. And so there is an awareness now that there is choice. So you're not just stuck with whatever it is that people say.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I like the way that you put that. Um, It makes me think of this other kind of um, uh, thing that's in our society right now, which is this idea of the choice architecture, you know, around... um, like, there was this um, book, I think, I think it's called Nudge, exactly, actually, where um, you talk about sort of like, um, yes, we make individual choices about a lot of things, but we're also making those choices within a given array of choices. And those choices are structured and presented to us in, in specific ways. And they're talking about marketing, you know, so we know that like, like at the checkout counter at the grocery store, there's all sorts of little, tempting snacks and you know um gossip magazines and things that like because we're standing there and they're within our eye you know eye level and we can see them were prompted and i like that because we're also prompted all the time with the choice architecture around gender so what you were saying you know i mean i was uh, socialized around this as well about sort of like what the expectations were as uh, as a girl as a young woman um, we can go through different hairstyles from, from college that you probably remember so this is like the, the good and the bad <laughs> and you're having a conversation with somebody who's known you for, for uh, 25 years or something like that um, but yeah so I think um, again A lot of those choices, they're not wrong choices, but it's just being aware that there are certain things around gender that are kind of at our eye level, so to speak, to go with that analogy, that are like easy for us to choose. Um, And there might be things, other choices, that we would be well off to consider even if we make the other choice ultimately, yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel like as long as there's agency and choice involved and we're not on automatic pilot, we're in a good seat yeah
1: yeah absolutely
0: um i also want to talk a little bit about how can someone with uh an awareness that they may have blind spots around these issues be more of an ally and partner and not ally I, i'm sort of mm, about that word because mm. sometimes it means like i have this position of awakening yeah. oh, wow you my you know help on you or something and other people are like i don't really need your help i just need you to understand yeah, yeah. Um, And, so, well, I mean, I'm just speaking for me. So yeah. what can people do who have maybe blind spots around this or who are sort of like, I don't really want to have to do this work, or why is this something else I need to learn or know about, or why do I care? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked this
1: question because um, I have a series of worksheets in the back of this book, and I just came out with an actual uh, an e workbook that I um, – also meant to give people something to do around these issues. So um, basically the gist of what I would love for people to do on behalf of trans and gender nonconforming people is to think about the organizations that they're a part of and to um, and do this gender audit where you take stock of how gender is invoked in different administrative policies, whether it's the bathroom or different, a job application form or surveys that are being done or a recreational soccer team that's gendered. Um, and then to have conversations with managers and leadership around, um, like, do we really need this particular gender policy? And if we do, then let's maybe explain on the form, when we ask somebody to check a gender box, tell them why we're asking. And that like this basic thing. That's really what I wanna sort of um, encourage people to do. Um, to uh, and I think the more sort of like cisgender people that can do that on behalf of trans people, and can make arguments, and I and I offer like a series of different scripts in this e-workbook that that's available on my website if people are interested in starting a conversation like this, to actually, um, yeah, break the ice around this and to talk about, again, the the cascading benefits, like this could be better for our company, you know? This could be a better way to use our square footage in our restaurant or or whatever it is. Um, I think uh, it goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation about people not knowing what they're being asked to do. And often that, you know, we get paralyzed around that. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to not say or do anything because I don't want to be called out in public as making a mistake. So I'm operating and I want to give people some like literally like some worksheets to work on where you um, can even imagine different scenarios and then, think about all the gender policies and then start to redesign them. Like, okay, how, how could we maybe get at this goal that we have that's legitimate goal um, around like identifying people, people's personal identities, you know, um, without invoking gender? Like, is that possible? Um, knowing that the better option for trans and gender non-conformed people is to not invoke gender in a policy unless it's really, really important.
0: Okay, and I'm just gonna continue with the devil's advocate line of reasoning. So know that that's where this is coming from. Okay. So then it would be uh, the next question is, well, if you weren't that way, uh, it wouldn't be so uncomfortable for me. And why do I have to do this work? This is dominant culture speaking, mm-hmm. or you know, dominant positionality speaking. Yeah. So, um, so you need to not be that way because um, I shouldn't have to change because I didn't do anything.
1: Right. <laughs> so yeah, and this like sort of like triggers different thoughts in my mind here about um, there's a, a large part of the discussion publicly right now is about sort of like the born this way kind of narrative, you know, so are trans people um, born with different brains, you know, is this something that like um, you people can't really help to use that language that I wouldn't use. But um, and we saw a similar narrative around gay and lesbian identity, which still persists right now. I mean, think about conversion therapy, that we're still having these fights, you know, that are kind of, we're taking some steps back to like when we were in college, some of these dis- discussions, but um, I I sort of bristle against the born this way narrative because um, I don't think that that's the only reason why we shouldn't discriminate against somebody, <laughs> you know, like just because I can't change this, you know, um, then we, we shouldn't discriminate against them. I think that we have to have a much a different sense of civil rights and why they're there in the first place, which is to protect vulnerable minorities, numerical uh, minorities, people whose lives don't necessarily comport with the majority culture. Um, and so I think we've gotten away from that in our public discussion around civil rights it's like well like you put it you know your what about my rights as a cisgender person what, my right not to change the way i talk and not to change the bathrooms you know um which is not which is never never been it's not why the bill of rights was <laughs> initially you know it's, that's not what it's about it's about the fact that you have to encode certain rights legally speaking and in policies because of the tyranny of the majority Otherwise, you're going to stamp out um, the minority. So, um, so that yeah. And I had a couple of other thoughts, but we can. I kind of lost them there. But I, that's that's something that I really. Because because what if it you know what if it's a choice you know what's wrong with that, I you know what if sexual orientation for some people is a choice you know or being trans or gender nonconforming is a choice. To me, that's no less you know, authentic um, than being born this way, and I can't help it, and I can't change it, and that's why you should accept me.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. And, you know, again, it's a very provocative question, but as a journalist, I've gone into and lived in communities where I hear those kinds of arguments made um, on the regular and have had to really investigate and interrogate Uh, you know, where those folks are coming from, and what is it that might be able to be a place where there is a connection, right? Because in the end of the day, um, we have way more in common as humans, uh, or as even mammal species, whatever, living beings Mm -hmm. than we do different. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, we are unique. And I think oftentimes we get lost in the uniqueness and this sort of individuality part. And, you know, we are either, oh, we're all the same or, you know, we're, also different and we're sort of fighting for each of our rights. And so the intersectionality of this is interesting to me too because of the racial component and the uh, multiracial component in your own background. Forget about the uh, adoptive component in your own background as well, which lends all these different lenses um, in much the same way that I'm multi-layered and multi-tiered in terms of my background. But uh, how do you think this plays out with race also? Because I think it is worthy of Uh, noting because I do think it's important
1: (laughs) yes it is important um and this goes back to sort of um you know how we're perceived by other people you know um and sometimes that matches up with our own self-identifications and sometimes it doesn't and there's this whole kind of back and forth that we go through in life um it absolutely is a a factor here um and when i transitioned um i noticed a a lot of palpable changes and socially you know uh, some of them were privileges that i got you know whether it was like in a meeting i didn't get interrupted as much i mean all these things they're very real you know about what happens to you know when you're perceived as, as female in different social settings at the same time as um someone who is in some some settings perceived as African-American, and that is my, you know, I'm biracial, white, and African-American, um, depending on the context, or at least seen as Latino, probably, or, diff, you know, not white. And that comes with its own sort you know, all the sort of profiling that we're also talking about right now in our society. Um, so I think for Black trans men in particular, um, there's there's a kind of an elevation and a you know, and also um, uh, is demotion, is that a word? <laughs> That's the one that comes to mind, but like downgrade, being downgraded socially. And you feel that, I remember, and I tell the story in the book about, um, I was coming into the office on a weekend and um, here I was a tenured professor and I just happened to have shorts and a t-shirt on because it was the summer going to get something from my office. And there was a white woman who um, just like yelled at me down, from down the hall, what are you doing here? You know? And it turned out this was a graduate student even. So I mean, those sorts of scenarios, um, you, really, you really feel that. You know? And so I think if people, when you don't personally have an experience, it's easy to sort of dismiss it and say it's not real. But I think, like, for me, I've been on, literally on both sides of these issues, you know, and I felt it. And it's it's very, very real um, and incredibly, like, destabilizing and upsetting, you know, personally, when those kinds of things happen, when you're assumed to be, oh, this is a, you know, somebody who shouldn't be here, you don't belong, and I'm threatened by you, you know, because you appear to be um, a, a Black man. So, so yeah, so that's the, the, so the race definitely has a factor here. Um, it's always intertwined with gender. We never see each other as just women or men in the society. It's always as white men or black men and white women and black women and and then there's so much in between and differences. But we in the society, that's kind of like, are you white or you black and those sorts of things. And then we might talk about some other groups. But yes, to, to answer your question.
0: Is there a way to, if one is trying to wake up to whiteness or wake up to, um, you know, this uh, genders, if one is trying to become more informed and and check implicit or unconscious bias and become more uh, culturally competent. Is there a way that someone can perhaps integrate, do you think, these issues in terms of one kind of uh, learning? Or do people just need to take different classes and do different worksheets and try different things at home? Or how would one even, you know, because I feel like we're asking a lot of people who are in the space where they are, in dominant culture, so to speak, and not the experiencers of the oppressive forces that could be coming on someone because of race or gender, but at the same time, want to move into a space where they can be more partnered, but feel overwhelmed because their life is already filled with whatever else it's filled with, which can often be a lot of just everyday garbage. Yeah. yeah. And everybody,
1: and as you know, and everybody knows with a certain number of years under your belt and just life experience that everybody goes through hardship and everybody, you know, everybody. So, I mean, having been a person of color in a lot of white spaces, and I know you have been as well, um, you understand people truly feel aggrieved, you know, even when they might, you know, they're, they're white and male and have class privilege. Everybody. So that that question that you're asking is a very real one about how do you sort of like activate that you know empathy and that you know will openness and willing to learn. I think you know one of the things is to really think about our stereotypes and start to to you know break them down. One of the most pernicious stereotypes around um, trans people is this uh, this this idea that um, a trans person is a a man dressed in a, wearing a dress and going in, he is gonna go into a women's restroom and harm girls and women. And when I did, I went on a bit of a radio tour with the book last summer and I did some conservative talk radio, not too conservative, but I felt it was important to engage because I wanna talk across political divides. And that was the single most thing that that everybody kept coming back to. And even when I I assured the person, you know, that this has never, ever happened. There's no documented case where this has happened. And when you really think about it, it really, it probably wouldn't happen because there are so many social um, uh, norms, like rules, against a man doing that. Um, uh, and that, that it, it just doesn't make any sense. And the other thing is that yes, women and girls have been assaulted, sexually harmed in public restrooms by men who have, without any hesitation, gone ignored the seg- you know gender segregation and gone in there because they saw somebody go in and they know that they're alone in there. It's architecturally secluded it's bad design, you know, for safety. Um, So those, so the fact that what we have right now is not working for us at all. Um, But that even when I would go through that and try to disarm that stereotype, inevitably the interviewer would come back and say, okay, um, but I think my listeners are still going to be worried about that man in a dress, you know? So like somehow we have to try to, really talk to people about that stereotype and like how that, you know, because if you're stuck there, then that just, you know, it raises people. Well, my daughters, I'm, you know, I'm, all this stuff. And it goes back to my anecdote about being in men's rooms with my daughter, who's three years old. Um, I'm not particularly fond of having to to hold her hand and walk her past men at urinals, you know? (laughs) I mean, so that's happening already so um so anyway i could i get very excited about this topic but
0: I well no i mean i think it's relevant and it's important and i yeah. i guess i was just trying to figure out if there's a way to consolidate some of the racial awareness along with the uh gender awareness and have that be something that um I, you know i don't want to say comes as a, a one-stop shop for getting literate on <laughs> yeah. and then we could throw the environment in there too you know yep. <laughs> really i think that um that all of it just has to be something that people engage in. And there are plenty of resources out there, including your worksheets and including uh, a lot of classes online as, as it pertains to cultural competency and understanding, you know, implicit bias and things like that that people can engage in. But what I hear you saying, and what I really want to sort of make clear is that most people are coming from a place of wanting to feel safe, whether that's the listeners you just described, whether that's trans communities, whether that's anybody that you would meet anywhere. And that that really is a basic human right to have that dignity of safety preserved. And I think that for a lot of people, um, if they're not really feeling safe in themselves or don't know how to cultivate that or have had boundaries violated or other kinds of um, either systemically or or personally and relationally, um, then that can get really muddy. And so we try to externalize this feeling of safety uh, beyond that which it's sort of reasonable because there's still this internal sense of uh, dis-ease within that I think mindfulness for one can, you know, begin to help Uh, you know sort of investigate and 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 soothe and sort of give people a different lens through which we're looking at things because that's really it's not what happens it's how we relate to what happens and so it's how are we relating to the people we meet as people or as color or as gender or you know and i think that that's really the invitation that you've put forward in this book really is getting to know the who are you and looking in the mirror first and then asking the who are you when we are in relational settings and not just the what are you that can come across when it comes to um, issues pertaining to trans communities especially
1: yes i yeah i agree with everything that you just said i think that you know i yeah i think that, like the you know the whole adage that hurt people hurt you know and that i mean all of it is is true and when it comes to prejudice and bigotry, um, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's always coming from a place, you know, that it's about that individual person. And, um, I, I, I think that one way to kind of, um, create a dialogue is to hear people's stories. And so the more, uh, the more stories that we have from individuals across racial categories in the gender spectrum about, you know, just the basic fact that you talked about about our basic humanity and that again that we do have a lot more in common than we have in you know different um and that there are a lot of points of connection and that was something you know with some of these conservative uh talk radio interviews that i gave um when they went well i remember one guy saying you know I, you know, it was like two people and he was saying to this, his partner, like, no, I feel like I could, you know, sit down and have a beer with Heath, you know, he's like, you know, I mean, it, he wasn't saying, well, this, he's not so bad as I thought it was going to be. But I think, you know, maybe he had a stereotype that I would be um, judgmental of the questions and sort of preachy and, you know, uh, talent, you know, uh, but I just, I tried to be, you know, engage in the conversation and assume good intentions. So that that kind of thing can happen and we know even with like the social science research that those human interactions make a big difference for people's you know prejudices and their you know political opinions later on so um that's a benefit I think of like these the trans people being more in the public eye and to see that it's just not just one idea that we don't just look like one stereotype, but that there's all sorts of, just like in any group, you know, like there's all sorts of people, differences within our community. And again, like much more in common with, you know, you know, you and I have a lot in common, you know, uh, trans and cisgender, but we have a lot in common um, and know each other as, as like human beings full human beings and that. And that's possible and doable, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't drink anymore, but I'd have a beer with you anytime. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have an O'Douls or some version. Yeah. Of that. Um, you know, two more things before we wrap up. One is the um, Scarlett Johansson, uh, you know, sort of recent brouhaha over her, uh, you know, stepping back from her role as a, a transgender, uh, well, not as a transgender actor, but having instead allowing room and space for there to be a transgender actor in the role of new movie i don't or what would have been her new movie I, I forget the name of it and then also the idea of um gender pronouns and how people can begin to use that perhaps as a launch pad for these kind of conversations in workplace settings or in social settings or even in their sort of disposition of curiosity around uh sort of waking up to trans and and, and sort of being more inclusive overall so um, just curious talk yeah. to me about um what happened with that movie.
1: Right, and I saw bits and pieces of this in social media, and I I must admit, I don't know what the movie is per se, and kind of all the details, just the kind of the controversy that you talked about, but maybe can offer, because your question made me think of the the show Pose, I don't know if you've seen this, which is about, it's on, I think, FX, but it is about um, Black trans, culture um, and the, like the ballroom culture. Do you remember Paris is Burning, that movie? Okay, so that sort of like ballroom uh, culture um, uh, with gay and trans uh, feminine uh, men in New York City in the 80s. And so this show is, I love it. Uh, it's great. Uh, not least of all because all the music is familiar to me <laughs> and he would love like that too probably, but also because I um, the person, and I'm for, for Ryan somebody, the producer, he's done some other things too, a gay white man has decided to, you know, cast a bunch of, you know, black trans female act- actresses and also um, behind the scenes. So like, Janet Mock um, has written uh, some episodes and directed, and he's like, also just, you know, so I think that's amazing, and and talk about like a good ally, I mean, and it makes the show very authentic and very, I mean, just really rich because the stories go beyond the stereotypes. And so I think that's something, just one thing about Hollywood. About the pronouns and small steps that people can take, you know, um, now you're seeing some on some email signatures, I have it on mine, some people are including their gender pronouns, and that's sort of a way. That uh, As an organization, if you kind of say like, okay, we're all going to do this, uh, like, again, there's no real cost to doing that. Um, And the benefits are multifaceted because some people have gender-neutral names. And if you want to refer, you know, like, it's important to ask how people want to be referred to. Um, So, yeah, the pronouns thing, in meetings sometimes I'm at where people go around and say their name and also their pronouns. So, I think that there are small steps that we can take as a society um, to do this. And it's sort of like a learning learning moment as well.
0: Yeah, so I might say Francesca Maxime, she, her. Yes. That's yes. how I self-identify. Yes. And you would say, Heath Davis, he, him. Right, and that would be how you would want to be referenced and how I would want to be referenced. And so I think that that's one way that people can begin to open up uh, conversation around the fact that, you know, don't make assumptions. Um, very last point, and then we're going to wrap. It, I know you closed the book with kind of a, sort of a little bit of a wistful position around the way that you were on um, on a Abbas in, in Philly. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we do run into these, I say they're not necessarily landmines, but they're kind of like a cow pasture where sometimes we step into things that are a little mushy and squishy and not so nice, you know, sometimes. And uh, I did this recently when, I was at a workshop in the city, in New York, and I was in the bathroom and I had come out and I was mm, texting, like I was trying to just wrap up a couple of things and there was nobody else in there. And then I sort of turned around and I wasn't being very mindful, I admit, you know, so, and it was sort of a new place. So I was a little disoriented, My, you know, in the, in the right place. I, I was texting and I looked up and I said to the person that I just saw out of the corner of my eye, am I in the right bathroom? And that was the first, because the person did in fact have short hair and I then was checking myself to realize, wait, you know, you're in the women's room. Yes. You've come here at least three times today for this workshop. And you were just surprised that there was somebody who doesn't look like your programmed idea of whatever woman is to you, uh, that happened to be there. So instead of saying anything beyond that, I just sort of slunk away. You know, I didn't really say, oh, I'm sorry, or that was an ouch moment, maybe, or that was an oops moment, or I just want you to know that every, I'm, an idiot right now, and you know, like I'm programmed and I'm conditioned and whatever it is. And so that's just what what happened. And I recognize that, but I fess up to that and uh, You know, I'm a human being and I'm trying to wake up. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Uh, and you also describe something at the end of your book that's a little bit similar, but not exactly
1: Yeah, yeah, and first of all, I grew up on a farm, and so the metaphor of the cow (laughs) patch—actually stepping—I've done that. That, That's that's a real thing. Uh, So that's very helpful as far as like a visual. Um, But yes, at the the conclusion of the book, I talk about this moment where again, um, I knew Charlene uh, Arcilla, who again, the black trans woman who was at the center of this lawsuit um, against the bus company had worked with her in different um, projects in the city. Uh, I was on the bus coming home from a long day of teaching um, and I saw Charlene get on the bus and she was not questioned. At that time the gender markers were still on the passes. She wasn't questioned by the driver. She was able to get on the bus so that was you know she would say like a good day for her as far as that goes. Um, But then I saw how almost everybody on the bus stared at her you know, and, and, and it's very, and, and Charlene and I talk about sort of her composure and bearing, you know, in the face of this, which is like an everyday occurrence, right? And it goes back to the fact that I don't experience that in my life. So that's a huge difference, you know, part of the same community, same terminology, big difference in our experience in the world. Um, And I sort of, and I talk about this moment where I feel like I, again, human and messed up because I should have Said hello to Charlene. She didn't notice me. You know, sat in front in front of me. Um, but I remained silent, and I, because I was sort of paralyzed by this what I was seeing of this sort of like this these, these gazes, the sta- the rude stares, you know, um, and um, quizzical looks, and um, and I t- you know I didn't want want to be wrapped up in that, you know, and and oh maybe they think I'm one of them too. I say, you know, and that kind of very real moment. Um, is real. Uh, and then the other thing I just wanted to say about relating to your own admission of, of that, that story, I have also made mistakes around gender. And, and, and one thing that has been hard for me is to use the gender-neutral pronoun they. You know, so I know several people who identify want to use that term. They use that term. And um, even in like a presentation, I've tried to be mindful of using they and them and have slipped and not even noticed it. And then had somebody in the audience come up and say, you know, you you know, kind of upset with me. You, you know, you misgendered this person. Um, and it's hard, I don't wanna be wrong either. It felt, feels awful, especially when you write a book about this stuff and teach about it, <laughs> it's like, um, But I think like in both of our cases and for people who are watching and listening, The best thing to do is just to quickly say, I'm sorry, you know, just a quick apology, not to make a big deal of it and keep it moving. Um, I think that that's just the best Thing to do. I've been there, done that. (laughs) Yes
0: yeah and you know it 's a practice to wake up it 's not something that we just um you know snap our fingers and it happens overnight. It may happen in an insight in an incisive sort of way at one point where everything becomes clear. I know that was sort of a pivotal thing that happened for me three years ago about certain things. Mm-hmm. They became really clear, but there are other things very much like this that are still very much in process, so we 're going to leave it there. Heath Fog Davis, the author of Beyond Trans. Does Gender Matter? I highly encourage it. And really, um, I will send the links to this um, book and to your website so people can download the worksheets and do the um, kind of work that we're really just offering and inviting them to do that you have so beautifully put together as a template for people who want to start to just at least incorporate the walking down of this path as well into their overall journey. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Francesca. This has been great. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. My pleasure. Talk to you later. This has been Wise Girl. See you. Thanks for joining.